the Gospel of John. And tonight, uh, as you uh, from the Bible reading, we're beginning a new series looking at the book of 1 John. Our early writings attribute this book to the same apostle who wrote uh, the Gospel, and, and we have no reason to doubt why that's the case. One of the great things about John is that he gives us his reason for writing his books. So if you flip to the end of the Gospel, you will find written there these words, These things are written that you may know Jesus is the Saviour, the Son of God, and that you may have life in his name. Similarly, in the last chapter of 1 John, in verse 13, it says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life in his name. And as Jesus tells us in his prayer, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so by way of introduction to this book and to this message tonight, I'd like to point out two things that chapter 5, verse 13, tell us about this book. Uh, Number one, while his gospel is written so that people may become believers, uh, this book is written to people who already are believers. It's written to people who, who are Christians. And secondly, one John is written so that Christians may have assurance. That is, so that Christians may be sure that they are indeed Christians and do know Jesus. Now, That second point may sound a little bit strange, and it begs the question, why would someone put all the time in to write a whole book to convince Christians that they are actually Christians? Well, it's certainly a good question. Um, There's evidence within the book that perhaps, you know, false teaching was going on, so maybe that's what he's writing to correct. We all know that when something is taught wrongly, it can cause us to begin to doubt. On top of that, there's evidence that these Christians were ongoing under, uh, were under persecution. And so they may have been in need of encouragement to continue on in the faith. Those two things are true, but that's not what we're going to focus on tonight. What we're going to focus on tonight is this. Namely that John writes this book because to know as a Christian that you have come to know God is a great joy and privilege. In September last year, I sat down with a girl named Jane at Hawkesbury University in New South Wales. Uh, Jane was a Christian. She'd been coming along to our Bible study. She'd gone and done evangelism with us out on campus. Um, But as we talked one day, um, she said that if it really came down to it, she had no no confidence that, that she was actually saved. I'd recently learned about 1 John and that one of its purposes is, is to help build that confidence in, in Christians. So I asked if it was all right for us to have a chat, and she said it was. Uh, we sat down, and we prayed together, and then uh, over about half an hour, we started reading through this book, and I think in half an hour, we got through two chapters, maybe. Um, but as we prayed again at the end, uh, tears started to come in into this girl's eyes. Now, nothing had changed for her. She still had the same struggles that she had before. But as we'd been working through this book, God had begun to show her that he had been at work in her life in the midst of these struggles. And that gave her confidence that she had indeed come to know God. You know, for a Christian to have that assurance that they do indeed know God is, is a great joy. It's a great joy to know that when that last day comes and and it's judgment day, you can have 100% confidence that you are not going to be condemned. Judgment day doesn't need to scare you anymore. Death doesn't need to scare you anymore. 
because you have confidence that you know Jesus who was raised from the dead and that you know that he will likewise raise you and you will dwell with him forever. Affliction and persecution, it need not terrify you, for you have confidence that you know Jesus from whose love none of these things can separate you. Because you know that Jesus is your saviour, you know that he can and he will deliver you from sin. And in knowing him, your life has found its purpose. You found what you're made for. And because of that, every moment of every day, even the seemingly meaningless tasks can have an incredible amount of purpose and meaning when they're done for the praise and honour of your King. This is the great privilege of those who have come to know they do indeed know Jesus. And so in order that we too may share in in this assurance, there, there are two questions that we need to consider. First of all, how may someone come to know God? And then secondly, how may someone have assurance or confidence that they have come to know God? So first, how may someone come to know God? Well, if you have your Bible open to 1 John, um, we're going to start at verse 5. It reads this, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. God is light. Now, light when spoken of John usually refers to to one of of two things. It can refer to purity and and goodness. And so, in in that context, this would be a statement about God's nature. It tells us that God is is perfectly pure. There's, There's no evil in Him. Uh, he never lies, he, he's never deceitful. Those things are neither in him or, or are done by him. But light can also be used with reference to revealing, revealing truth. For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, it says, the true light, which gives light to everybody, was coming into the world. No one had ever seen God, but the only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so in this usage, the phrase God is light tells us that God reveals himself and makes clear his character and his will. And so because God is light, he has indeed revealed himself. The Bible tells us in the past, at many times and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets whose words were written down as a record of God's truth. But now in these last days, he has spoken by his Son, And that is John's confidence that he can say God is light. For as he says at the start of of 1 John, this Jesus who was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands. He who is the word of life, this life was made visible, for he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And because the eternal God was seen, John can now with confidence proclaim and testify to what he has seen and heard. Yes, it's only Jesus who fully shows us what God is like. Um, Margie, as we sung in the Kids Club song, I I, I love this one. It said, if you want to know what God is like, take a look at Jesus Christ. He helped the poor, he healed the sick, he even raised the dead. He taught his friends the way of love and showed the mysteries from above. He righted wrongs, he spoke the truth, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I wish Ryan was here to do some actions for us, but you'll have to do with me for now. 
and do like that song. For it, it shows us that thanks to Jesus, through, through reading scriptures about him or, or singing songs or, or listening to sermons or, or talking with believers, we may all come to know about God and to know what God is like. And this is good. It is good to know about God. But this, this is far too small a goal. It's not enough to simply know about God. Rather, each of us need to know him. In chapter 1, verse 3, we read, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So in other words, John is saying, These things we are telling you so that you may know God and have fellowship with us and with him. Okay, in speaking about fellowship with God, I was reading a book recently by uh, Pastor A.W. Tozer, and he writes this. He says, God, who is a person, communicates with us through our minds, our wills, and our emotions. He interacts with us, and the exchange of love and thought between God and the soul of man is the heart of New Testament religion. And this interaction between God and man is known to us. So on one hand, we have a knowledge of facts about God. And on the other hand, we have this exchange of love and thought between the eternal God and man. And so as I hope you can see, there, there is quite a difference between knowing about God and coming to know God experientially in a personal way. Indeed, because of our sin, there are many people who do not know God or have fellowship with him. According to both the Bible and human experience, our default as men and women is not to be in relationship with God, but to be separated from him. And though all day long God holds out his hands to a disobedient and rebellious people, by our sins we are dead to the spiritual reality of God. Because of our sins and its effects on us, as I think it said in the video before, something to this effect, our, our best efforts to know God is equivalent to the relationship that a corpse has with a living world. Therefore, if we are to come to know God, God must act and do something about our sin which separates us and its effects on us. And... Thankfully, something has been done. As John writes, he who is from the beginning has come and dwelt among us, Jesus, he who will save his people from their sins. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who saves us and who leads us into relationship with God. And he saved us by giving himself up for us. For though each of us deserve to die for our sin and our rebellion, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the Lord has laid upon Jesus the sin of us all, and it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus paid our ransom so that each of us would not be condemned to eternity apart from God. Yes, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we all might become the righteousness of God. And so as Jesus breathed his last breath, and as he died upon that cross, the Bible tells us that the curtain that divided the dwelling place of God from man was torn from top 
to bottom, with the final sacrifice paid and the wrath of God turned away, men could now freely enter the presence of God and be in relationship with Him. And so now, by faith in Jesus and in His work, we shall be saved from sin and enter into fellowship with God. We are told in Ephesians 2 that by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works that no one may boast. For this is the will of God, says Jesus, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. This is the way that we come to know God. Look on the Son and believe in Him and you shall come to know God. We're not simply told to believe that He exists or even to believe that that He's died and, and risen again. Rather, we are told to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to rely on Him and what He has done. And, and not, not just once, but, but keep on looking, continue believing. Though before you may have lived in ignorance, God now commands everyone to repent and to turn to the Lord and be saved from sin. For this is the testimony of our God, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved from the sin that kills us. For when God saves us, we shall also be born anew. When we cry out in faith, God has promised that the old will pass away and that he will work in us a change so massive that is described as becoming a brand new creation. Yes, for by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, life will be given to our mortal bodies. God shall give us a new heart and a new spirit that seeks after him. He will put his own spirit within us and we shall live and know God. He shall shine his light into our hearts to give us the true knowledge of God. And he shall pour his love into our hearts by his spirit that we in turn may love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And so, if you wish to know the Lord who created you, seek Him in faith, and you will find relationship with Him. This is where the difference lies between knowing about God and knowing Him. Belief in Jesus is that crucial difference that makes someone a Christian and that propels them into relationship with God. However, let us stop for a moment and consider this. I went on the Australian Bureau of Statistics and it said that in the 2011 census, 60% of Australians identified themselves to be Christian. If we went out into the pubs and the clubs in our city tonight, we would surely find many people who say that they are Christian, or at least who say that they believe in Jesus. Of people who go to church, almost everyone would say that they believe in Jesus. How many people have spoken truthfully? How many people have not? How many people believe that they have spoken truthfully, but really they have simply been deceived by the God of this age or by their own sin? Oftentimes we're content when someone says, oh, oh yes, yes, I I believe in Jesus. Okay, that's good that you believe in Jesus. We would do well though to ask a follow-up question, and that is this, how do you know that you believe 
in Jesus. That we ourselves may answer such a question, it is important that we consider, secondly, how we may know that we have come to know God. Let us start by saying what what can't be the basis for our assurance we've come to know God. It can't be that we simply believe ourselves to be Christians. For the Bible says there is a way that seems right to man and its end is the way of death. It can't be that we feel in our hearts that we are Christian or that we are saved, for the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. It can't be that we simply confess Jesus to be our Lord. For Jesus himself said to his followers, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And that many who believe themselves saved will hear him say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It can't be that at some point we pray to prayer and ask Jesus into our hearts. There is not a verse in the Bible that will back that up for you. And there are countless people who have prayed such a prayer and yet now live in unashamed wickedness. It can't be that a parent or a pastor or an elder of a church told us we are Christian. For it is the Lord and not man who truly sees and knows the heart. And finally, it cannot be because at some point in the past we repented and believed in Jesus. For it is written they were cut off for their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So then, on what can we build an assurance that we have come to know God? Well, here in our passage, John has written down for us three, three evidences that someone has come to know God. As the fruits of the Spirit bear witness to His work in their life, so, so these fruits or evidences bear witness to the fact that we have come to know God and that He has worked in us to make us a creation. Something to note before we go and have a look at these. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone. These fruits don't save us. Faith does. But the salvation which comes from faith always shows itself in the believer's life in in certain ways. And by observing these ways, the Christian may gain within themselves an assurance that they have come to know God. So, firstly, hello, upside down page. Uh, Let us look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1. It reads this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So here we see that walking in the light is the first evidence that someone has come to know God. Now, the word walking refers to to our standard way of living life. It's not so much the life that we live on Sundays or at Bible studies, but it's the life that we live when there is no one to impress. I'll turn this way for a little bit. Young people, if you are like me, you may be very good at looking as though you are walking in the light, 
when really in the secret places you walk in darkness. You may have your friends fooled, you may even have your parents fooled, because you're very successful at just showing that outer, shiny exterior. If you know what I'm talking about, it is that secret life that you need to take and weigh against the Word of God. And so we must all take the life that we live when no one is watching and examine it by the Word of God. For God is not fooled, and God sees in secret. We must test our lives not against our own thoughts, but against God's evidences that we are a Christian. So now let us look at this first evidence, walking in the light. There are a number of things referred to by by walking in the light. Uh, Number one, walking in the light refers to living according to God's revelation of himself. If we live as though we are God and he, he is not the Lord, then we lie and we deceive ourselves. Or if we live as though God has not given us a word and a commandments of the way that he wants us to live. Or we live as though like our, our goodness or our own working is the basis of our relationship with him. Then we lie and we do not practice the truth. Secondly, walking in the light refers to living purely. Paul in Ephesians 5 writes, But sexual immorality or all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And then thirdly, walking the light refers to to not living in secret. As Jesus taught Nicodemus, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to it for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be seen that their works are carried out in God. What does that mean? I think at least part of what it means is that those who walk in the light regularly meet with God and with other Christians in open and vulnerable ways. I think it means that rather than living in secret, because God has made us one body, Christians have fellowship with each other. And as part of that, they confess their strengths and their weaknesses. They confess their victories and their struggles. They confess sins to one another and they ask for forgiveness. And they also do this with Christ, who is the head of the body. And so, to summarize this first evidence, living according to God's revelation of himself, in purity and not in secret, is that first evidence that someone has come to know God. Secondly, if we move on to the next three verses, verses 8 to 10, it reads this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Personally, I'm thankful that these verses are written next. 
for they clarify something about the previous two. They tell us that perfection of living is not like the test of walking in the light. Rather, walking in the light is a life of, of seeking to live in purity and in, life of God, and in light of God's revelation. And so long as when we fall short, we realize it and we bring it to God, confessing our sin and, and turning from that, this too can, can add to our assurance. So let us now look at this second evidence. You, you will never hear someone who has come to know God say, I have not sinned. For, having been taken from the domain of darkness over into the kingdom of light, the Christian is very much aware of their own faults. The Christian knows that when they're born again, rather than being instantly perfected, they become a newborn baby who will surely stumble and fall. He delights in the new life that his father's given him and he desires to please him in all things, but he must learn to walk in the new ways of the kingdom. The Christian knows that he's sinned in the past and that though Jesus has forgiven him of those things, his memory of them still remains. And even in the present, he knows that if he takes his eyes off Jesus, he will surely stumble and sin against God. It seems as though the further someone advances down the path of, of Christian maturity, the more aware they are of how far we fall short of God's standard and the more grieved they are if and when they do sin against God. Yet, I feel that there, there is a danger here that we read, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And take that to mean that Christians must keep doing the same sins. We must not read that to mean that victory over sin is not possible. For we have to reconcile this verse with 1 John 3, 6, which reads, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And 1 John 5, 18, which reads, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, in one sense, because we have limited knowledge and we have not received our perfect bodies, we will keep sinning in ways that we are not aware of and we will fall short by our natural weaknesses. However, if we say that someone must keep sinning in the same way over and over throughout their whole life, in what sense has Jesus saved someone from their sin? The Apostle Paul writes in the sixth, letter, sixth chapter sorry, of his letter to the Romans, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that God's grace may abound all the more? By no means. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? Dear friends, if you are in Christ, you do not owe sin anything. It is not your master. Jesus is. Again, we're not instantly perfected. But he who died for you will also surely grow you in holiness. You owe sin no debt of obedience. 
And so by God's power at work in you, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And at the same time, there there is a danger on the other side. We must be careful, lest when we fall short, it leads us not to godly sorrow and repentance, but to despair. For though these things are written that you may not sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Not our goodness, not our perfection, but Jesus and Jesus alone is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so when you stumble and fall, confess your sin, for He is faithful not just to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us from unrighteousness. It will almost certainly take longer than we would like, but continue confessing, continue repenting, continue believing, and He can and will save us from this body of death. This is not just a nice theory, but this is the experience of those who have been brought from death to life and who have come to know the Lord, their God. Okay, thirdly and finally for this passage, let us look at chapter 2, verse 3 and following. It reads, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Okay, so this is the third evidence that someone has come to know God, keeping his commandments. This should not surprise us, for when we come to know God, we realize that he is the Lord and we are not the Lord. And we realize that because he is the Lord, he is the one who gets to call the shots. The melody of our life turns from do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy to what, what we sung earlier. Every waking moment for your delight, Jesus, we live for your glory. And so if we are to be people who live for his glory, we must be people who know his commandments. Do you know his commandments? While we should all strive, that's good. While we should all strive, as our young friend over here, to know all of his commandments, I think the more important question is, are you seeking to keep those ones that you do know? For if we are to live for his delight, we must know and do the things in which God takes delight. So prayed King David, I, Lord, am your servant. Give me understanding that I may keep and know your commandments. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. In a way, this is similar to our experience with sin, in that will we perfectly keep the commandments of God? No, we shall not perfectly keep them. But 
if we have come to know God, we should find that we begin to hate the things that He hates and to love the things that He loves. We should find that as we walk in the new ways of the kingdom of God, we come to love the Lord our God with all our heart, to love our neighbor as ourself. For on this rests all the prophets and all the commandments of God. And though we have not obtained the perfect keeping of his commandments, as the love of God compels us, we should press on to make that our own. And as we go, we seek to walk in the same way that Jesus walked, seeking as a little child following his father to step in his footprints and to do what is pleasing to him, that the love of God may be perfected in us. So, from the passage that we've looked at tonight, we have seen three, three traits that mark the life of a genuine believer. Walking in the light, confession of sin and cleansing from it, and keeping the commandments of God. These are not ways by which we earn salvation, but our evidence is that we are already saved and know the Lord. On one hand, the, these, these fruits evidence the work of God in our life. And on the other hand, they only come by the action of the individual. So beware, lest you think that because you've come to know Him, you can now sit back and relax on the couch. But rather, because you love Him, and because he is at work in you, rise now and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And on the other hand, beware, lest in your confidence you slip into pride in your own efforts. But remember that it is he who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Remember that it is only by God that we live and breathe and have our existence. And so we must all seek to continue to know the Lord and to walk in the way of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us finish with a few quick applications. Should you see these fruits that we've mentioned tonight in your life, these are evidences upon which you can start to build an assurance that you have come to know Him and that He knows you. Sometimes we like to think of assurance as an all or a nothing thing. But I think it is more accurate to think of it as something that grows with time. For the more time we spend with Him, the better we will come to know Him. And the more time we spend looking to Him, the more we will come to look like Him. Consider Enoch, who walked with the Lord for 300 years. In 300 years of walking with the Lord, how close and intimate a relationship must he have had? How much confidence, how much assurance must he have had that he truly knew God in a deep and personal way? If, though, you take your life and you examine it against the Word of God and you find yourself to be lacking, repent and believe in Jesus. If you are not aware of your own sin, and if your lifestyle shows no evidence 
of keeping his commands, of turning from sin, and of walking in the light. Ask yourself why you believe that you are secure in the Lord. On what have you based your confidence? If it is not on God's word and on God's work, then at best you can only have a false confidence. Perhaps you need to come before the Lord and admit, Lord, I have claimed to have fellowship with you, but I have been lying and not practicing the truth. Have mercy on me and forgive me of my sin. If this is you, trust in Jesus and in his mighty power and turn from your sin that the Lord may bring you to know him and make you a new creation. If, though, you are deeply aware of your sin and you sit there feeling burdened beyond strength, hope in the Advocate, Jesus Christ. Consider His cross. Consider His death and His triumph over sin. Consider that He paid for your salvation by His blood. If you do trust in Him, know that He will uphold and strengthen those who come to Him. And so keep repenting and keep believing that He can and will deliver you from the sin that afflicts you and holds you captive. By grace are you saved through faith. Finally, let me end with these words from John Wesley. Go forth then, little child that believes in him, and his right hand shall teach you awesome deeds. Though you are helpless and weak like an infant, the strong man shall not be able to stand before you. You shall prevail over him. You shall overthrow him and trample him under your feet. You, little child that believes in him, shall march on under the great captain of your salvation, conquering and to conquer, until all your enemies be destroyed and death is swallowed up in victory. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, have mercy on us and save us. According to your grace, grant that your children would be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit. Grant that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Loving Father, may we know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. And may we be filled with all the fullness of God by your mighty power at work in us. May we gain the joy of assurance. You are the Lord Almighty and you are able to do far more in us than all we could ask or think. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.